the Gihar people of 7 million strong of India and Pakistan and Afghanistan. Lord, we want to lift up this people that are 0.0% Christian, as far as we know at this point, completely Hindu-believing people. Lord, we want to ask you to draw this people to yourself. Lord, we each week are praying for these massive millions of people-sized groups that don't know you. And we know that you know them well. You know their every uh, person, every single person that's part of them. Lord, we ask you to draw them to your name, to send workers to the far corners, to go to India and Pakistan and Afghanistan, that people would want to go and teach English or teach math or teach faith, teach something Christian brothers and sisters that can go sow the good seed of the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would draw this people to you, that you would send workers to the far corners. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for a, uh, another church in our community. We're praying for Family Fellowship, for Paul and Lynn Blue. Uh, we are thankful for the uh, many-year ministry that Family Fellowship has had in our community. Lord, we want to ask you, first of all, this morning to bless Paul and Lynn, that they would be overwhelmed with your goodness, that they would experience the greatness of the gospel in their marriage and their family. Lord, to pray that that would spill over into the times of shepherding, the times of counsel, counseling, uh, the times in the pulpit, the times as they, as they serve in so many different ways. Lord, we just pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would continue to bless as you have for so many years family fellowship and that you would draw people to you, that they would have great problems like parking and seating. Lord, we ask you to be great in and through and among them. Lord, this morning also we want to pray for our few minutes that we have together, that they would be dear to us and that they would be a sweet aroma and a sweet offering to you. Pray that you would find us attentive. Pray that you would find us anticipating, as Kyle began our first, our first few minutes together, anticipating you showing up. Show us your glory in these next few minutes. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. I want to pray for one more thing. I meant to pray for our youth. Let's pray and go back to the Lord. Lord, also, we want to thank you for this, this amazing weekend that our youth have had together. Lord, I'm praying first for the youth that they have experienced you, that the seed that was sown in their hearts uh, will germinate, take root, that you will bless them for years to come because of the time that they spent together this weekend. Lord, we are so thankful, too, that they have been that there have been workers that love you, that love you dearly, that love each other dearly, that have been pouring into them all weekend. We pray for those workers as well, that they'll have, first of all, a front row seat to your glory, and secondly, that they'll have a view and a window to how you're working in the lives of these young people. Lord, we are so thankful for the many gifts that were expressed this weekend and the massive edification that took place among our youth and workers, our teachers, our discussion group leaders. Lord, we entrust that great work to you and thankful that you will not uh, leave it um, done, but that it will continue to uh, play out in the coming weeks and months and years. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we are beginning a series of sermons, seven sermons, a seven-week um, time together uh, in Lent. I grew up Southern Baptist, and Lent was something that you found in the dryer uh, or your belly button, if you didn't take care of yourself, you know, if you didn't clean yourself well. So, um, uh, kind of embarrassed to say that, but here I am, 52, here we are at year 17, 
Uh, there are some churches that we have a really high view of that are really, in, in, I think, in our, in our minds that are enjoying the Lord well, um, that, that are experiencing the Lord during the Lent season in a way that we sort of became jealous of. We said, ah, there's something going on there. Churches like The Village, uh, Matt Chandler is one that's been very intentional about saying, here's how we practice Lent and here's why. So we as a church have had a chance to say, do we want to do this? We met as the elders initially and said, is this something we want to do? It's oftentimes uh, associated with Catholicism. There are Protestant groups that practice Lent, but at least from my background, as a Southern Baptist background, Lent is not a, a common holiday. Advent might be, but Lent not so much. But one of the things that we've realized as we've studied together, that Lent is a time for us to be real intentional about enjoying a few things, okay? And I want to share what those are in a minute. We're going to have a reading from a family that's going to come up in just a moment. But first, I want to light these candles, and I'll kind of explain what we're doing here. This little torch is bad to the bone, so we can get it done. I could do some welding later. If you need anything welded, just let me know. There are seven candles here. One, two, three. Yeah, seven candles. Okay. These seven candles represent the next seven weeks together. Each of the Sundays, um, are, for six of those seven Sundays, we'll have a reading from a family or a young person or a couple of young people up here each week over the next seven Sundays. And there'll be a, a reading and, a, and an extinguishing of a candle. It's sort of the opposite of Advent. You know, over the course of Advent, you're lighting candles until Christmas Day, they're all lit, or Christmas Eve service, they're all lit, and everybody celebrates. This is sort of moving the other direction, moving through and toward the darkness of the cross. So the last candle will be extinguished, one of these tall guys will be extinguished on our 3 p.m. at our 3 p.m. Good Friday service, um, which is April 7th, I think, something like that, 10th, April 10th. Okay, so it's at 3 p.m. on purpose. So it, it, you might feel like, well, that's, that's my work time. Well, get out of work. Get out, just leave work. Just let your boss know, I need to go worship with my people and go celebrate the, the moment and the hour that my Savior and Lord gave up his spirit. 3 p.m. is on purpose. Okay, This whole season should be a season of interruption. We're on purpose going in through the spring, the finishing up the winter and moving into the spring with the interruption of enjoying the cross. Okay, so these candles are going to be sort of a mainstay for the next seven weeks. So the fields are going to come up. Y'all go ahead and come up. And they're going to share a reading. And then we'll continue. I'm going to share a little bit more about Lent, and then we're going to get into our sermon. That microphone's hot, yeah. First uh, Lenten season reading is Hosea 6, 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He is, his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Let's pray. 
O Lord, our God, long-suffering and full of compassion, be present with us as we enter this season in which we recall our Savior's suffering and then celebrate his triumph. Give us your Holy Spirit so that as we acknowledge our sins and implore your pardon, we may also have the strength to deny ourselves and be upheld in times of temptation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Fields. You'll see different families up, up here over the next seven weeks reading and dis- extinguishing. Lent seasons often involve a couple of things. They involve a time of fasting and a time of feasting. Now, let me explain the fasting portion of it. It's it, often misunderstood. It should be a little bit uh, sort of alarming even, like, oh, we want to make sure we handle this right. Um, the, the, the notion of fasting really is something that can take place over the course of the next seven weeks. It might be something in your life that's good. Okay, we're not fasting from sin. <laughs> we're not fasting from sinful practices over the next seven weeks. We're fasting from good things like eating, like maybe social media is something you enjoy. You're fasting from something, potentially, if you decide to fast. You're fasting from something that's good to create some space so that you, then you can feast on something that's better. Okay, that's how I want you guys to think about this over the next seven weeks. If you opt for fasting from something, maybe it's social media, maybe it's uh, eggs. That might sound weird, but actually the early church actually had a practice of fasting from meat or from eggs. And that's where the practice of giving eggs at Easter came from. Like on Easter morning, finally I can eat some eggs. You got to know those didn't come from bunnies. That's not connected to the bunny thing. Those eggs actually came from this Lent Early, early church Lent practice. So you may fast from something over the next seven weeks, but in place of that fast, you focus on feasting on something. Feasting may be in that time and space that you gave to something or that time and, and energy that you gave to something, replacing that with, I'm going to spend that time in prayer every day. I'm going to spend that time in study every day. I'm going to spend that time in meeting with another brother or sister in Christ and working through a Bible study together I'm going to replace this thing that I have taken, this good thing that I've taken out of my life for the next seven weeks, and I'm going to replace it maybe with song. Maybe as a family or as a young individual or young person, you replace that with a time of singing true things back to God about God. So the notion of feasting has got, or fasting has got to come along with the notion also of feasting. So let me just encourage you with this thought: whether or not you fast from something. It's not righteousness earning. You're not earning any righteousness that's already been won for us on the cross. Amen? You can't earn an ounce of it. Okay? It's simply responding to what's been done for us, creating space so that you can feast on something. So whether you fast from something or not, the goal here as a people is that we together make an effort to consider the depth of our sin coupled with the sacrifice and greatness of Christ. Those two things together in the same concept in the same uh, moment, considering it a scandal that grace would reach so low for us. That should hopefully condition not only our whole lives, but especially these next seven weeks. The goal is that we as a people of God at CF would connect to the person of Christ in the next seven weeks and his sacrifice. We're not talking about ideas, people. We're not talking about ideas. We're talking about a living being that actually can be enjoyed and can be experienced. And that's what we want to be really intentional about a people, or as a people 
about doing this next seven weeks. And in all that, we expect as we enjoy him as a people, not as an idea, but as a being, that he would reframe our whole experience. That he would give us hope in hopeless situations. That he would give us endurance when we think we just can't take it any longer. That he would give us purpose when we feel like we lack direction. That he would give us joy when all else seems disappointing. We're going together work at enjoying this person this next seven weeks through the simple gospel of Mark. So you can go ahead and turn there to Mark chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 11. And if you would, stand, join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Lord, speak to us from these rich and living words this morning. Renew us. Encourage us. Give us a great view to the greatness of your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Okay, here's the plan for the next few minutes. I'm going to sort of give you a lay lay of the land in these ten verses. We're going to kind of climb into the context of what's going on in these ten verses. And then I'm going to share with you, hopefully, two really potent, wonderful realities, I think, that come out of this passage Uh, wonderful views of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the plan. We're going to unfold the context really in kind of three parts. The first part is going to deal with some geography. The second part is going to deal with a mission, impossible mission. Okay, and the third part is going to deal with a parade. Okay, then we're going to get into the two really potent things that come out of this passage. So let's climb in. First of all, let's deal with some geography. Since we're in Mark, let's just get a lay of the land. We've kind of parachuted into this book, haven't we? We've been in the book of Matthew for months, so we, Mark is a different book. So we need to kind of get a lay of the land of where we are in space and time. So look at Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Mark does something for us in the book of Mark. He gives us some geographic markers. Okay, these geographic markers we want to notice. We want to pay attention to what he's doing here. Some things that he calls to our attention if we're, if we're um, keen. I think if we're paying attention. So here's the first one in 8.27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Okay, that's the first little geographic marker okay, that we're going to consider. 
We're just going to take a moment and hit these highlights. But just kind of place yourself in space and time, sort of the northeastern part of Israel. Okay, Caesarea Philippi is kind of the northeastern part. It's a little bit north and east of um, the Jordan. Okay, the Sea of Tiberias, it's all kind of northeast of all that. So the kind of northeast end of the kingdom. It's the first geographic marker. This is the place where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter confessed as like the proto-church member. Well, you're the Christ. Wonderful moment in, in each of the Gospels where Peter says, you're the Christ. Who else? The first church member officially, charter member. Then right after that, he foretells his death and resurrection. Look at the little head. There's a transfiguration. There's some really important stuff unfolding at this point. He's at Caesarea Philippi. He asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter says, well, you're the Christ. Then there's a transfiguration. Some really important things are beginning to unfold. He shares with them that he's going to die and be raised from the dead. Okay, look across the page at chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. That's the next geographic reference. Okay, they're at Caesarea Philippi, and then they're moving west and south through Galilee. Okay, and something else is happening important right there is Jesus again foretelling his death and resurrection. The second time he foretells his death and resurrection. Then look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. Capernaum is south end of Galilee. Okay, Jesus has been at the north end of, up there by Caesarea Philippi. He's moving west and south through Galilee, and now he's moving down to Capernaum, and he's heading somewhere. Okay, notice the geographic references as they continue. Chapter 10, verse 1. He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Okay, now he's continuing to move south. Let's look at some of the headings that come up. The next heading in chapter 10 there is Jesus foretells his death a third time. There's also another reference there in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus walking ahead of them. If you're reading that like me from, the, from you know, an American, going up somewhere says somebody's going north or they're going up in the, up in the air. The reason they use that kind of language here because they're going up to Jerusalem, it doesn't matter what direction you're coming to Jerusalem, you're going up to Jerusalem because it's so important. They're actually going south. He's marching south and in many ways is what a funeral procession. He's marching south to his death. Caesarea Philippi, Galilee, Capernaum, Judea. And now he's moving south, uh, continuing to move south. And now here in verse 32, he's going up to Jerusalem on the road that's actually going south to Jerusalem. Look at verse 46. And they came to Jericho. Okay, he's getting closer. I'm going to read a few of the things that are going on there in Jericho because I think it's important. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd is with him. Keep an eye on that great crowd. You're going to see them here in a few minutes. And then here's a blind guy named Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. He's sitting beside the roadside. Look, at, look in verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up. Man, don't you love that image? Blind Bartimaeus springs up, and he came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. 
Go your way, formerly blind Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus says, which way are you going? Because I'm going to go your way. You going south? Okay, I'm going south. So here at this point, he's continuing south from Jericho, up from uh, Caesarea Philippi, Galilee, Capernaum, Judea, uh, to Jericho. And here he's on his way into chapter 11. Uh, He goes from here to Bethany. Bethany's a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. Bethany's a familiar, familiar place for us. If you remember from John 11, that's where his friends uh, Mary and Martha and formerly dead Lazarus live, right there in Bethany. Between Bethany and Jerusalem, there's a little uh, uh, feature that's called the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a profoundly abrupt mount right there next to uh, the, the city, the old town Jerusalem. And right there near that is a little village that must have been called Bethphage. We don't know where or how big that village is now or what happened to that village, but some little village right in almost a golf ball shot from Jerusalem is a place called Bethphage. So Jesus has gone from Caesarea Philippi to Galilee to Capernaum to Judea beyond the Jordan on the road to Jerusalem to Jericho to Bethany to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, and here he's heading into, into Jerusalem. This is the first time that he's entered Jerusalem in the book of Mark. Okay, we're sure in the other Gospels that he's entered Jerusalem at this point. Mark's making the point there that he's heading into Jerusalem for the first time. He's heading toward his death. He has an appointment with some, some nails. He has a, an appointment with some rugged wood. And he's heading toward what, what he knows at this point is going to be his death. The first time he's entered Jerusalem will be in Mark coming up. He likely spends the evenings in Bethany a couple miles away. Probably stays, we don't know this for sure, but probably stays with his friend Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. The passage says that they drew near to Jerusalem. The reason I called called attention to the great crowd there in chapter 6 is because that's likely the they that he's referring to. They drew near to Jerusalem, included this crowd that was likely made up of a bunch of Galileans. It included the disciples. It included the Lord. And it included a fellow newly sighted named Bartimaeus. Isn't that greatness? There's old blind, formerly blind Bart right there with the rest of the crew heading right into Jerusalem with the Lord. This is likely a crowd that heard his te- teaching and preaching. It's likely the crowd that saw him heal Bartimaeus. And here they are heading into Jerusalem. So that's sort of geography. Now let's deal with this Mission Impossible. I'll read this passage again so, uh, and I'll kind of tease out how this is. It may not be Mission Impossible. Uh, I'm, it might be Mission Important. Okay, let's... I'll, I'll, Kind of expose this for you. Beginning in verse 2. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied. He turns to two of his disciples. He said, I got a mission for you. We don't know who these disciples are, and we're not even really sure the village that he's talking about. It's likely Bethphage, but we don't know that for sure. We know more about the donkey's colt that he's about to talk about, and the instructions that we know about either of the disciples are the village. Okay, They're not the point. You go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Okay, just kind of unpack this a little bit. I I don't know that I've ever really considered what must have really unfolded here. I guess for years I've just kind of thought that, you know, they said the Lord is in need of this, so these guys just kind of acted like mindless drones. Like they were just kind of uh, caught up in something, like some, some force was, was, uh, was leading them to just turn the, the colt loose. Well, actually, what, what, what I, I guess our, um, you know, the, 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 um, 
Who am I looking for? Like theologians, the guys that really study this, that study the original language and study the history, believe that this was really sort of a, a password, a prearranged arrangement, um, complete with a password. Okay, so let me kind of show you how that unfolds here so you can see that it's not necessarily mission impossible because getting a, a cult from Bethphage was probably not impossible, but it's mission important at the very least. Here's the password, and, or here's the test, and then here's the password. The people ask, why are you doing this? And here's the password, the Lord has need of it. Okay, That's kind of cool to think about that Jesus ahead of time likely had a prearrangement with someone in Bethphage that he was going to send his disciples ahead and pick up this colt for this specific entry into Jerusalem at this specific pre-planned point in time. Now something that I really enjoyed about this password, really if you kind of break this password down, it really is this. The donkey is needed for God's service. Okay, the, the, um, the donkey in me enjoys that just for a moment. I mean, just really just kind of consider that for a moment. That we, need, we should have a sense of humor about considering that he's saying the donkey is needed for God's service. That's a password that all of us really can enjoy in some way because the Lord has been using donkeys for 2,000 years since then. <laughs> right? I mean, Peter can attest to this. He was a, a donkey extraordinaire. So the, the thought about God needing a donkey for his service is really something that should delight us here before we really continue. The disciples followed his instructions, this mission impossible, or at the very least, mission important. And they came back with the donkey's colt as instructed. And then they used his, their, their cloaks for his saddle. Okay, now let's look at the parade. Between verses 7 and 8 of this passage, 7 says they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And then in verse 8, many spread their cloaks on the road and he's on his way into Jerusalem. So somewhere between verse 7 and 8, he climbs on this donkey's colt and heads toward Jerusalem, maybe a mile, maybe half a mile, some distance, probably through the Kidron Valley. That's really the only way into Jerusalem from Bethphage at that point, from the Mount of Olives. There's nowhere else in the Gospels, any of the Gospels, where Jesus does any riding. He walks everywhere. This is the only place he climbs on any sort of beast. Something else that's interesting about this moment is people, when they entered Jerusalem at Passover, they entered on foot. Maybe because of the crowd, maybe because of the importance of the festival and celebration. There was an agreement among the people is that you, walk, you enter on foot. If you have an animal, you walk it. And here Jesus, though, he stands out as he's not going to walk into Jerusalem. Not on this week, not on this time, not where the Passover lamb is entering Jerusalem. He's going to ride this donkey's colt into Jerusalem. It's pretty cool when you think about the imagery of him standing out. If you think about this being a parade, and you got, you know, the, I think the parade this last year, Santa was on toward the, toward the rear of the parade. You remember it in Greenville? I mean, I hope you all went to the Greenville parade. If you didn't, you missed out on something pretty awesome. Santa was on this really high float, and he was way up and back. You remember how high that float was, but it was toward the back of the float? Just imagine this parade. I'm not talking about Santa here, but this parade, there's only one float. And that's right in the middle with Jesus riding this donkey's colt and everybody else is walking. At every entrance into Jerusalem, everybody else is walking. But this parade, Jesus is the only one with wheels. Some, some interesting things that are going on here too. The cloaks are being thrown on the road. People are taking their coats and throwing them down. The only other place I could find in the scripture that gave any insight into this is the 2 Kings chapter 9. Uh, when Jehu was crowned king of Israel, they, put the, they, they laid their cloaks on the steps at, at his anointing. 
Okay, that's the only other place I can find is a scriptural reference for this. But I, I, I did think about when I was growing up, I remember the stories about a gentleman, what a gentleman would do when a lady was going to step into a puddle. You take off your coat and you lay it down in the puddle. That might be something weird for our younger folks to hear, but the older folks, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've never seen anybody do that, and I would probably encourage the gal to just jump. <laughs> but you can at least appreciate that it's probably out of respect or out of reverence that you would lay your cloak down for something like that. The green branches in the street or in the road leading up into Jerusalem was probably a picture of Jewish nationalism. A palms were the represented Jewish nationalism. They would uh, often cut palms to celebrate some sort of prominent victory. But a really important time in the life of Israel would be at the Feast of Tabernacles where they would cut green branches because they would remember the booths that they lived in when they were traveling across the wilderness. Okay, so cutting the, the, the palm fronds is likely what they were. The greenery was probably connected to that in some way. And here we have, it says there's a crowd in front and a crowd behind him shouting. Again, this is likely our Galilean crowd. Okay, they show up from Sulphur Springs. Let's just imagine a bunch of people from Sulphur Springs show up into Dallas for some big event. Okay, we're just going to grab Sulphur Springs for the next few minutes. Blind Bartimaeus is, is, is among them, probably up front and behind, and they're actually singing what's called a Hallel Psalm. The Hallel Psalms go in Psalm, through, from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, and this particular reference is in Psalm 118. And something that's interesting and unique about Hallel Psalms is that they were done antiphonally meaning that they took turns singing verses back to one another. Okay, the only thing, I was trying to think of a contemporary example of antiphonal singing, and the only thing I can think of is at the basketball games, because I love to go to basketball games and watch basketball and sports so much, where you're shouting across the court at one another, we got spirit, yes we do, we got spirit, how about you? Other guys say, we got spirit, yes we do, we got spirit, how about you? And you're shouting back and forth, that's kind of antiphonal. But the difference in this case is they're shouting for different teams, when the people of God are singing antiphonally through the Hallel Psalms, they're singing about Yahweh and the greatness of God. And they're singing it back to one another. But what's interesting here is it says that they're shouting. It doesn't say they're singing. It says they're shouting. They're shouting Hosanna. Hosanna means literally, save us. Hosanna became a term that began, began to be used almost like hallelujah. Like saying hallelujah. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That particular phrase comes right from Psalm 118. And then they said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now that's unique. And I'm going to bring that up in a moment. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then here's the flip side of that antiphonal singing. Hosanna in the highest. All pious Jews knew and sang these psalms. Did I say it right? Sang? Christy corrected me on sang and sung the other day, so I want to make sure I got that right. Now, okay, we did the work. Now two really treasured and potent insights that come from this passage. Here's the first. I think this passage gives us a view to a king considerate. A king considerate. If you would, turn to the book of Zechariah. I don't have a number of places for, for you to go this morning. Really, this may be the only reference that I have you turn to the entire morning. Zechariah chapter 9. I'll give you a minute to find it. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. I can't remember if it's the one right in front of Malachi. Like the second to last, maybe. Is that right, Greg? 
I really want you to see this. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context for Zechariah. This should be familiar to, to us because Zechariah is where we landed in Advent. We spent the entire month of December and the last part of uh, November in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is a beautiful window into the promised Christ. Zechariah is at the tail end of the Babylonian exile. The people have been restored to the land, restored to Jerusalem, but here they are trying to rebuild the temple and trying to rebuild the wall, and they're facing tremendous um, difficulty. They're facing discouragement. The book of Zechariah says that they considered their days small. They didn't realize how important their days actually were, and they're just going about it like they're insignificant and unimportant. And the book of Zechariah has some beautiful pictures and windows into the promised king. See, they've had a history of bad kings. That's what landed them in exile. And here they have a promise of a coming king from Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. I'm just going to read a few verses, and we're going to draw some things out of this passage and just consider for a moment what's going on in this entry into Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, who spent years in Babylon, who were ripped from your homes, who were made eunuchs in the king's court, who were ripped from your homes and your land, who've now been restored and are facing difficulty and facing uh, obstacles and facing fatigue and uh, facing discouragement. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. At this point, he's three or four hundred years out. But this is where it's going down right here in Jerusalem, this day that we're reading about today in Mark chapter 11. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off from the chariot, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. So this promised king that's promised at that point, that's being realized in Jerusalem this day in Mark chapter 11, is a humble kind of king riding a donkey's colt. And he's speaking peace to the nations. And he's going to rule from sea to sea and the rivers to the ends of the earth. Look at verses 11 and 12. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This promised king, this promised three or four hundred years out, that's realized here on this day in Jerusalem, heading into Jerusalem on this donkey colt, will set prisoners free. He's going to do this about four or five days later, people. He's literally going to do this. Four or five days later. Six days. I don't know how that count works. We're in a few days of him actually accomplishing, setting prisoners free, restoring double, and protecting them. And look at verses 16 and 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, like a good shepherd does. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness And how great is his beauty. Listen, folks. You wonder why he rode a donkey's colt into Jerusalem? He had to. He had to because he's good and beautiful. Because he's the servant king that was promised there in Zechariah chapter 9. 
He's the king that Israel needed, and he's the king that the world needs. And he's riding a donkey's colt into Jerusalem on this day that we're considering 2,000 years ago. Something I want you to do, if you can, think about a time where maybe you've ridden horses. You've been around a stable. You've been at some place. Some of you actually do this as a hobby. And I think, yeah, I see some of y'all are horse riders. I know. You know the sound a, a horse makes is their, their their hooves are in gravel or dirt. That real gritty sound where you can almost hear the grit. You can almost hear and feel the earth. I want you just for a moment, just imagine Christ riding this donkey's colt into Jerusalem. This road that wouldn't have been paved. Jerusalem was paved, but this road leading into Jerusalem probably wasn't paved. And just hear the dirt and the grit of God riding a donkey's colt into Jerusalem. Couple that with the sound of an animal under burden. I don't know how small a donkey's colt is. I don't know what the weight load, weight capacity is for a donkey's colt, but it probably isn't a whole lot. And I would think a grown man might strain a donkey's colt in some way. So couple that grit, that audible grit of the earth with the sound of an animal under load. The snorts and the sound of a dirty donkey at that. We're not talking about a big old handsome steed. We're talking about a donkey's colt riding a dirt road into Jerusalem, carrying God himself. I want you to just think about that for a minute and think about the character of our God being on display right here as a God that gets in the grit with us. A God that gets in the dirt with us. A God that gets on a donkey for us. A God that gets in the mess with us, A kind of king that's a contrary king, a different king altogether, a servant king, a shepherd king that gets in the mess with us and just doesn't leave us in our mess. That's the kind of king that we see on display here that's riding this donkey's colt into Jerusalem. The king of rocks and dirt and donkeys and a bunch of common Galileans that need him. Man, that's the kind of king that's on display right here. Going into Jerusalem. There's a treasure in this passage. At least it's a treasure for me. You know, the, the test. You know, what are you doing untying that donkey's colt? And the password, the Lord needs it. You know, that in, encouraging you know, reality that God still uses donkeys. The Lord needs this donkey for his service. What comes right after that is the promise that we're going to return the donkey to the owner. Can you all just think about that for a minute? Okay, God the Son is riding a donkey's colt with the grit, with the snorts of an animal under load, into Jerusalem, into the city of God, to bear the sins of the world, to make a way for all humanity to worship him for all of eternity. And he's making the point to say, hey, would you let the owner know that we're going to return the beast to him? What a great God. What a considerate king. Man, I'd imagine what this would be like, what it could be like. Where's Daniel? My Daniel. Is he in here? Where are you? Daniel. Like a, just, you have your little whistle ready. 
Okay, you know, like the end of a, like a, a scene change in a Western movie where the, the cowboy, he's about to throw down with somebody. And he wants to get his horse out of the way. So he hops off his horse and he slaps him on the tail. He does what? And he runs off. Man, that's what I imagine it would be. This king is about to save the world. But this king takes the time to say, I'm not going to send this beast to be uncared for because a righteous man cares for his beast, first of all. The kind of king that would care about an animal for the first... I mean, just consider that. Lucy. Your little dog, Lucy. My dog, Major. Your cat, Daniel. Your little, your little cat that needs to be institutionalized. <laughs> the kind of king that would care about animals. Just consider that for a moment. What a considerate God. And then he's so considerate, too, to say, I'm going to make sure that this animal who's probably means something to his owner, doesn't leave uncared for, but actually gets returned to his owner. And then I'm going to go save the world. What a great king. You think he doesn't care about your details? He cares more about you than he cares about a donkey's colt. You got to know that. What a great king getting in our mess with us. What a considerate God. Consider it God who loves a blind man named Bartimaeus springing up, throwing his coat off. A considerate man that loves disciples who are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. What a great God. What a delightful king. king considerate the second thing is a king obscure a king obscure more and more I studied this triumphal entry over the course of the week I realized it wasn't quite as triumphal as we might think in fact in my notes and in my mind when I say and hear triumphal entry I have invisible air quotes that are going up around triumphal It wasn't quite as triumphal as we might make out. First of all, here's a few reasons. Here's the first reason. These are Galilean crowds. This is a crowd from Sulphur Springs that's making a run on Dallas. And everybody in Dallas is going, who are these jokers? Galileans. Country folk. They've got nothing important to say in Jerusalem. Nobody's going to stop the machine for a bunch of Galileans from Sulphur Springs. Hey, first of all, it may not quite have been as triumphal as we think a bunch of commoners a bunch of country folk not the jerusalem crowds that shouted for his death later at the end of the week that's what interested me over the course of the week i think i probably said it a number of times how fickle people are they're shouting hosanna at the beginning of the week and they're shouting for his crucifixion by the end we're talking about different crowds this is the galilean crowd that followed him that saw his miracles that followed him into jerusalem the jerusalem crowds are the ones that said crucify him. dallas said, crucify him. Here's something that just shocked me. This is telling. This Galilean crowd, this great crowd that's seen so many things, that had seen so many things by this point, look what happens to them. Let me find our passage again, back in Matthew chapter 11. I want to show you in verse 11. I didn't read it. 
because I want you to see what happens, and it's shocking. Go back to Matthew 11, or Mark, excuse me. I might say Matthew by habit. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem. Okay, someone's taken the donkey's colt by this time. We know we hadn't whistled and sent him off. He's going to get returned to his owner. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Where's the crowd? Where's the crowd? This crowd is saying you're the Messiah and now they're gone? You walk into Jerusalem and now all of a sudden they disperse and go see their aunt and uncle that live in town? Or they go to the Via Dolorosa and get some uh, uh, beignets or something like they, they're in New Orleans? I don't know what you go, what you eat. What are the things that you go eat when you go to Jerusalem? I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to think of what that bread is called. Hillel bread or something? Is that what it's called? I mean, I go get some, get some snacks. But they vacated. This is a Galilean crowd from Sulphur Springs. We're not talking about the best and the brightest. We're talking about country folk. I'm not cutting on anybody from Sulphur Springs. Let me, let me, let me reel that back in. <laughs> I'm talking common folk, like us. Okay. And then they're gone. They disperse. That floors me. Something else that's interesting is they did not call Roman guards. This wasn't a disruption to Passover week. If all of Jerusalem was pouring out of Jerusalem and they're shouting, the Messiah is here, you don't think the Romans would be called? There's no calling of the Roman guards. This was largely inconsequential. Something else that's interesting is this Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118. All the pilgrims into Jerusalem, and this is how they all walk. They walk just like this. They're going in Jerusalem for Passover. They all sang these Hallel songs. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to the temple. Look how beautiful the temple is. Look how beautiful Jerusalem is. I'm coming to the city of the Lord on pilgrimage. They all sang. <laughs> Man, I'm floored. I thought this was like a serious, crazy, awesome parade. The more and more I studied, the more and more I realized it wasn't as triumphant as we might think. Man, the cloaks on the ground, the greenery, tell us that some people celebrated him. But if they thought he was the Messiah, part and parcel, if everybody's like, this is the Messiah, man, it would have gone crazy. And they wouldn't have vacated right after. Something else that's interesting from Psalm 118 that's not in Psalm 118 is the phrase that they use, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. What they didn't say is blessed is... The son of David. That's messianic. They said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That might have just been a byword, just a saying. This guy's pretty awesome. He's pretty great. And we're going in Jerusalem for Passover. And there's the temple. And let's, let's, we got spirit. Yes, we do. They're doing their antiphonal thing and come back and forth. And then they're not singing about a Messiah here. They're singing about this coming kingdom of David. This triumphal thing may not have been quite as triumphal as you might imagine. I'm surprised that they weren't being more specific in seeing about the son of David. Like the thousands 
and thousands of other Passovers and the countless numbers of entries into Jerusalem by Jews over those years, it's likely this entry in Jerusalem was regarded as a guy going on a pilgrimage more so than it was a messianic triumph. Here's a quote from one of the guys that I read. What he describes here is like a flash worship mob. You know, you've seen them in the cafe or something or a mall where they just kind of form, they just kind of meld into, and then they all disappear again after. Listen to what he says. It's crazy. It was a brief moment of enthusiasm, scarcely distinguishable from the exaltation of the groups of pilgrims when they, when the, they entered the city and seeing the city of David and the temple came into view. What? It sounds like it was really kind of ordinary. What I realized as I'm studying this over this, this week is that I don't think he was nothing special because they threw their cloaks down. They cut their green branches. There's some version of singing, although he called it shouting. I'm not sure it was a Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. I think he wasn't nothing special, but I think he was barely special. Barely special. This was what I would might call a spontaneous worship burst. Quickly spent. I don't know if you ever thought about this. You've ever wondered why he wasn't famous by the time he began his ministry. You ever thought about that? I mean, he had a star. <laughs> I mean, you know the guy, the little kid that grew up in grew up in Nazareth. You know he's got a star. What? He's got a star. He had one. I don't know that it's still there, but he had a star, at least at his birth. He had to have some fame and notoriety connected to him, but he didn't. John the Baptist didn't even know who he was. And he leapt in the womb when his mother met Mary carrying baby Jesus. And yet he's still the, are you the one? It's crazy. Simeon and Anna prayed over him in the temple. Magi visited him. Shepherds were out in the field with the heavenly host, filling the sky, singing about him. Don't you think he would have been famous by the time he began his ministry? Yeah, that's the one that everybody knows about. He's also never sinned, by the way. <laughs> we don't know if any time he's ever broken the rules at school. He obeys his parents perfectly. That is, unless he's going to make a trip to the temple or tabernacle and forget about him. Synagogue, I shouldn't say tabernacle. Man, it's just crazy that he's not famous. By the time his ministry began, there's something about his ministry that's called messianic hiddenness. There was a tenor of messianic hiddenness that characterized his entire ministry. And it was hidden within the ordinary. It was hidden within the ordinary. I think he was far more ordinary than we might think. Isaiah chapter 53 says he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from, men who, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was hidden somehow in the ordinary. Despite the miracles, somehow even those were subdued. 
Somehow they were discreet. He was under-impressive. This triumphal entry was probably more like, hey, look at that guy riding the donkey into Jerusalem. Look at those guys shouting around him. What's going on over there? Let's go get some of that bread. Man, it was far less impressive than we might have thought. Someone asked me years ago, no, someone asked me recently if I'd ever been to Jerusalem, and I, um, to Holy Land, and I got to tell them a little bit about my story to, to, to go to the Holy Land. If I could describe my trip to the Holy Land in one word, it would be this, under-impressive. Was it Seth? Y'all, yeah, we were talking about it. Seth and Sophie, yeah. Under-impressive. I got to stand on Nebo. Okay? Mount Nebo, where Moses looked over in the Promised Land. I looked over in the Promised Land, and I was like, what? That looks like a desert. Where's the milk and honey? I was expecting to see like Switzerland. You know, you stand there going, oh, Ricola. <laughs> and I'm like, what? That's the promised land? We got to go to the Jordan. And the Jordan was like, a... it was like I got better rivers to bathe in than back home than this river to, to cure my leprosy. What are you talking about? It's under impressive. The flies were so bad. Uh, our, our friend Kent Jones, I thought he was going to have to be institutionalized with Daniel's cat because of the flies. It was crazy. I was shocked. I was walking around with my mouth ajar except for when I was around the flies because I could not believe how under-impressive it was. Going to Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley. Now, I'm not a golfer, but I would imagine a guy could possibly, possibly hit a golf ball across the Kidron Valley. You know, I just had visions of Kidron Valley being this, oh, this beautiful green space. David and Jonathan running around shooting arrows at each other, you know. Mount of Olives is steep, but it's not real big. The whole place is super under-impressive. I thought about this story, knowing the God of this story, this Bible cover to cover, really, and the God of this people that he's called the God that takes the foolish things and confound the wise. That he's done that with his people. He's done that with this geography. He's done this with this story. The many that spread their cloaks. I believe it was many. It says many. I believe what it says. And the others that spread their leafy branches. But knowing a God who takes the foolish thing to confound the wise, I believe is a smaller crowd of people maybe shouting rather than singing off key and out of rhythm. And it quickly dispersed. Because this God works with the ordinary. Man, this is my final point for the morning, y'all. This has got to condition how we, what we expect of this journey together. It's got to condition what you expect of a journey with this living God. It's going to play out in the ordinary. That's where he lives and moves. In the dirt. In the grit. In the ordinariness. Of life. This has got to condition what we expect from life together with one another. First of all, we know he's with us in the grit and dirt. He's shown us that. But secondly, he's very much at work in the ordinary and mundane and routine. And you've got to see life together with him and with each other with a different set of eyes and a different set of expectations. God shows up in the ordinary. That's precisely 
where and how he moves. He was indeed a man from whom men hide their faces, barely special. But to us, he's the shepherd king. And he's beautiful and good. Let's pray. Lord, what of you? What of you into a servant shepherd king? What of you into a, a thoughtful king that's mindful of even as something as simple as a donkey? Lord, what of you into a, a king that was ordinary and obscure? Or to us, he is our treasure. To us, he is our hope. To us, he is our life. To us, he is our Lord reigning and ruling. He is the object and person of our worship. He is the only thing that we have hold on to, and he is everything that we hold on to. He is what we preach. He's what we sing about. He's who we sing to. He is our salvation. He is so good and so beautiful, and we are so thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll share a passage from Matthew uh, before we distribute the elements, I want to just encourage you, if you're trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you take and eat and drink. If you're not trusting Christ and you are here maybe uh, searching and you're trying to get some answers, I would ask you to forego this meal. And if you're visiting with someone to talk about what it means to follow Christ, we can talk about that meal at some point. But this meal is for those who are believing and trusting in Christ. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, I wonder if it's a whole other password occasion. Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did just as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? As we distribute these elements and as you think and ponder and meditate on the supper, will I betray you? Lord, please hold me fast. Keep me close. Let's distribute those elements.